All right, so if you have your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 11. I want to just remind you that our vision is walking together, discovering answers, finding hope in Jesus. And part of that is being together to study God's Word and finding hope. And uh, you might realize that uh, this section of Revelation is getting into the most difficult part uh, for most people to interpret. There are people who think they have all the answers, but um, for me, is you know, I do a broad scope of research on it. Um, it's it's not easy. So let me just read for you from Revelation 11, and we'll start at the beginning. Then there was given to me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot for forty-two months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for twelve hundred and sixty days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, they must be killed in this way. And they have the power to shut up the sky so that the rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. And when they had finished their testimony... The beast comes up out of the abyss and will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and celebrate that they were, and they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, the breath of life from God will come on the, into them. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who were watching. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up into heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Well, that should be enough. Let's go. Well, it is difficult to say, and, and I will say to you that one of the most basic rules of Bible interpretation is that you take the easiest sense first. You take the literal sense first. It says what it says, you take it for face value. But sometimes uh, things aren't quite that easy to do. So I want to give to you a couple of um, viewpoints on this passage. First is the literal view, that is that these two witnesses are literally two people that have a prophetic ministry right before the coming of the Lord Jesus. And so the question is, who are they? Can we even know who they are? And there are Bible scholars that believe that one of them was Moses because uh, of the signs, you know, turning water to blood and some things like that. And so it kind of mirrors the plagues of Egypt when Moses was delivering the children of Israel. Uh, and so some people think Moses is involved here. And also, uh, Moses is kind of a symbolic, if you will, 
uh, all-encompassing idea of the law of God. So keep that in mind. Moses brought the law, the Ten Commandments, of which uh, we heard a little bit about in the prayer we need to forgive because we've broken commandments or people have broken commandments against us. And so Moses could be one because of the signs. It also might have something to do with the fact that he was the lawgiver. The other, other people think that the, the other guy was Elijah. Verse 5 speaks that fire flows out of their mouths. Uh, they have power to shut up the sky so that it won't rain for 1,260 days of their prophesying. Uh, do you remember Elijah was the one that went to King Ahab and Jezebel and said, because you've turned the hearts of the people away from God to serve Baal, I'm, the, the, it's not going to rain for three years. And at his word, there was a drought that took place in Israel, and people starved. There were people dying, and uh, people were mad at the king and, and so forth. And there was this judgment that was coming upon, and Ahab and Jezebel were blaming Elijah for it instead of looking at themselves and what the people were doing that brought about this drought. We also see in Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, that it says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming and great and terrible day of the Lord. And so the prophecy is that Elijah is going to come before the coming of the Messiah. And so these two are often compared also to the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And so there's this idea that Moses and Elijah are symbolically representing the witness against the the nations, God's law, which puts the standard of righteousness up, and the prophets, which announce the solution, the coming of the Messiah, the crucifixion, the, the death, the burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's kind of one. Oh, let me throw you a curveball. How many of you like curveballs? They're, they're easier to hit once you get onto them. Anyway, some think one of them might have been Enoch instead of Moses. Maybe it was Enoch. And the reason is because in Genesis chapter 5, verse 24, it says, Enoch walked with God and he was not where God took him which the implication is that Enoch didn't die a natural death like everybody else, that he was caught up into heaven. And guess what? Elijah also didn't die a natural death, right? How did he depart from the earth? Was it a triumph? No, it was a chariot, right? And so he was caught up in a chariot of fire and taken up right before people's eyes. And so there's there are... Bible scholars would say, well, it's probably Enoch and Elijah that will literally come back to earth because they didn't die a natural death. And so they'll come back to the earth and they'll prophesy, and then they will die a martyr's death. And the reason is because in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it says, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. And so people say, They've got to come back to earth and die like everybody else, okay? And so that's the reasoning behind these viewpoints. And there are a lot of people that hold these. But then there is a symbolic aspect of this. 
John tells us in verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, who are these? Who are the lampstands and the olive trees? Well, in Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah was having a conversation with an angel. And he asked the angel, uh, well, before I say that, he was actually having a vision. And in his vision, he saw a, a menorah. And he saw two olive trees on either side with pipes that went directly from the olive trees to the menorah. And the oil was flowing right from the olive trees into the menorah to provide the fuel for the light. And so as Zechariah is looking at this, the angel asked him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And again, I asked him, what are these two olive branches besides the two gold pipes that pour out the golden oil? And Zacharias said, now get this, excuse me, the angel said, do you not know what these are? And, and Zechariah is, is one sharp cookie. He says, no, Lord, I don't. <laughs> and so he said, these are the two who are anointed to serve the Lord of all the earth. Because you see, in Zechariah's day, the Israelites had been punished for their sin and forsaking the covenant of God they had been deported into Babylon, and for 70 years they lived in a foreign country as strangers, as slaves, and so forth. During the time of Zechariah, many of the people were allowed to return and rebuild the city and rebuild the temple. But it was discouraging. It was difficult. It was, you know, they, they were kind of thinking, oh, okay, God is going to just kind of make everything flow together. It doesn't work that way, okay? It was hard, and there were enemies that were mad that they were back. Seventy years, these other people had the land, and now they're like, well, what are you doing back here, right? Kind of like what's going on in the Middle East today, right? And Zechariah was trying to encourage the people to get on with the work of God, and he saw this vision, and the Lord said to him, I have my witnesses. I have my ways of getting things done. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of God. So when we return back to the book of Revelation, there are people who don't think that the two witnesses are necessarily literal people like Moses, Elijah, or Enoch or two others necessarily, but perhaps symbolic, either of the law and the prophets, or perhaps symbolic of the priesthood of Jesus and the royalty of Jesus being merged together so that he becomes the solution to the problems, that he is the king of kings, he's the son of David, he is the son of God, but the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews that he is also a priest. Even though he was not born of the lineage of the priesthood, he received a priesthood based on uh, the priesthood of a man named Melchizedek back in the Old Testament. And that Jesus was called in the Psalms a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews explains that. Now I know I'm going through a whole bunch of stuff here. Okay, so we're not saying that Jesus is necessarily the two witnesses either, or perhaps the law and the prophets. 
But perhaps the two witnesses are another symbol. You remember in chapter 11 of Revelation, John was given a measuring rod, and he was told to measure the temple. He was told to measure the altar. He was told to measure the people who worship on the altar. But don't measure the outer court, because that's going to be trampled by the nations for 42 months. How many days is 42 months? 1,260. How many years is uh, that? It's three and a half, right? So last time we talked about these symbols of these numbers, three and a half, 42 months, 1,260 days. These two witnesses then come along. John doesn't even get to the measuring part. <laughs> Next thing he sees, these two witnesses. Perhaps the view is that God is trying to give John a number of ways in which he's saying, listen, here are my witnesses. The people of God are my witnesses. Would you agree with that, Wayne? The people of God. And we can look at it in this fashion, two witnesses. There were people before the time of Jesus that believed on the basis of the promises, and they were called the Old Testament saints. And then there are people after Jesus died, was buried, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and God deployed his people, his church, and wherever the church has been proclaiming the gospel and people have been coming to faith in Christ, these are the New Testament saints. And perhaps what John sees here, these two witnesses are those who put their trust in Jesus, either beforehand by promise or afterwards by proclamation. Okay? Now, I'm not going to tell you what I think the right view is because I think I just did. We don't know if it's two people. We don't know if it's Elijah, Enoch, or Moses. Maybe it is. Or maybe it's them and us. But the most important thing is if we take a strict adherence to any one of these views, we might miss out on the bigger picture. When Elijah defeated Baal's prophets, I don't know if you remember it. Sorry, I got ahead of myself. Do you remember, remember the story of Elijah? I want to go back to him in a minute. And he was having this conversation with Jezebel and Ahab, and it wasn't raining and there was drought. And then, they, and then Elijah says, look, I'm going to show you who the Lord is. You guys want Baal to be worshipped. You want him to be your God, and you've been serving him. And Baal was an awful, awful deity. People sacrificed living children into fire as burnt offerings to Baal. God said to, the, to Jeremiah, this kind of thing, it never even entered my mind that people would do this, that they would sacrifice children. He was horrible. But this is who Jezebel was sold out to, and she was wanting to spread the gospel of Baal. And Elijah said, no, I'm going to take him on. And so he called for 400 of Baal's prophets to meet him on a place called Mount Carmel. And on that mountain, he said, you guys build an altar. Put fire around it, put whatever you want to sacrifice on it, and then you, you go first. You call on your God. Now, Baal was the god of lightning and thunder and rain. Remember, it hadn't rained for how long? 
for years. He says, call on him. And so they called on him, and then they started doing rituals, and they started dancing around in fury. They started cutting themselves with knives to show their devotion to Baal. Look how serious we are, Baal. Bleeding, screaming, out of their minds, and nothing happens. I won't get into what Elijah said to them, but one of the things he said is, you might do it a little louder because Baal may be on the toilet. He literally said that. He might be relieving himself. You might need to yell a little louder. And, of course, they were mad at him. And they said, okay, it's, it's my turn. Pour some water on the altar. And they poured water on the offering. And he said, do it again. And they did it again. It was so saturated that there was a trough of water around the altar. Water, wet wood, the sacrifice on top was soaked. And then Elijah said, God... Show these people who you are. And fire came down and consumed the offering and consumed the wood and it consumed even the water around it. And the people that were watching went, Oh, the Lord, He is God. Yahweh, He is God. And Elijah said, How long are you going to waver between two opinions? Well, you remember what happened the next day? Jezebel said, because you've done this, I'm going to do the same thing you, to you that you did to my prophets. And Elijah went into a phone booth, took off his glasses and his suit, and he had a blue and red suit on with a big S on it and said, oh, yeah? No, he ran, right? Forty days he ran to Horeb. What was Horeb? Where the law was given. He's like, God, where are you? The people aren't repenting. He thought there would be a big revival. He thought that there would be a big change of heart. The people weren't turning. They weren't changing. And he was upset. And so he ran. And then God finally, after he gets kind of composed, he says, uh, you know, you remember there was a whirlwind and there was fire and there was all different things. He said, I'm not in those things, but I'm in the still small voice. And he says, so what are you doing here? And he says, well, I'm the only one left. And God said, I have 7,000, 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. If we go back to Revelation, we find that when the prophets prophesied, there was a greater earthquake and 7,000 perished. Here's the contrast. In Elijah's day, he didn't think there was anybody faithful. God says there's 7,000. But the nation perished. The nation was soon taken captive. But in the end of days, there will be a number that will perish. But the contrast is the majority see this and give glory to God. And they repent. Now, why do I go through all this? Well, so what? Right? Everybody out there say, so what? Okay, here's, here's what. No matter which view you take on these things, the overarching theme of Revelation from beginning to end is that God is faithful. 
and he's faithful to his faithful ones. God is always faithful. Now, the message is not that we're going to escape from harm or persecution or suffering or difficulty. But the truth is that God is faithful to watch over every single one who belongs to him. He can and will raise us to life if we need to. And so often we're so consumed in the temporalness of this life that we forget that this is just a little blip on the radar screen of eternity. But what we do here matters. The decisions we make here matter, especially the decision of whether we will be faithful followers of Jesus Christ or not. Because if we are, God will be faithful to us, even if he has to raise us from the dead, which he will do. So may God help us, worship team, if you'll come on up, may God help us to recognize that in all these symbols and all these teachings, everything that, that John is trying to tell us and everything that the Bible's telling us from beginning to end is that we mess things up and God's fixing it and he's faithful. He is faithful. And he's faithful to his faithful ones. And if you haven't put your trust in Jesus Christ, you need to. <laughs> Because that's how you become faithful. You put your faith in him. And he will be faithful to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may you uh, move in every heart today, reminding us of your faithfulness, but also, God, anyone today who needs to make that decision to follow Jesus, may they follow you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.